I'm Kate Daniels. We have this important opportunity to consider our place in the world on our little planet Earth as we meet John Cress, a distinguished scientist and curator of botany at the National Museum of Natural History. John is also co-editor of Living in the Anthropocene, Earth in the Age of Humans. And we have the opportunity to consider what we need to do in light of the changes that are going on. Information is power. And here's the opportunity for a lot of empowerment as we meet John Cress. John Cress, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us this morning. It's, it's my absolute pleasure to be talking to you today. And I am so grateful because this new book, Living in the Anthropocene, and I'm saying that correctly, is that right? That's right. Yeah. There are a number of ways to say it, but what you, the way you pronounced it is fine. Okay. So Earth in the Age of Humans. And I think uh, there are many of us uh, looking at our dear Earth, our home, and uh, just shuddering at what is going on. Uh, on the other hand, uh, I think we see people blithely going along and thinking, oh, the earth is here forever. And I think I get the sense that living in the Anthropocene addresses this for us. Uh, it does. The, the planet, our planet, <laughs> our only planet, uh, earth has been around for oh, 4.6 billion years. If anyone out there can conceive of a billion years, let alone 4.6 billion years, uh, it's been going through cycles of life coming and going. There's many extinctions that's happened. The climate has changed on and off for 4.6 billion years. But we've entered a different era right now for the planet called the Anthropocene. And it is going to change again. And it's going to be quite different from what we as humans have known it for the last 10,000 years. And this change, of course, we haven't been around in the past uh, centuries to know exactly how it was uh, affecting humans, but we are seeing a change happening at a much more rapid pace than in past, and we're having to actually live through this and adapt and, and uh, grapple with it, aren't we? We are. We are, and we're grappling with it. Uh, our children will grapple with it. Our grandchildren, probably for a thousand years, we're going to grapple with what we've uh, created today, and it's going to continue to change. And this, these changes, though, if we really pay attention, some of them uh, are happening more rapidly when we look at uh, climate change, the way these recent hurricanes have been the most devastating, the strongest on record. Isn't that an indication of, of what we're living with? It's, it certainly is. But let me, let me put it a bit in perspective. I mentioned 10,000 years. About 10,000 years ago, the climate on the planet's Stabilized, and we're not exactly sure why it's stabilized, but before that, we've had ice ages and such things, and the temperature went up, it went down. 56 million years ago, the temperatures were about what they are today, or what we're predicting they will be. Uh, but around, so that the, the stable 10,000 years is really the period where humans evolved and where we developed agriculture, we de developed domestication of animals. We built our cities on coasts that we thought were stable. All of that was, was very uh, mild, and that's uh, how humans have evolved. But suddenly, because of the act activities of humans, that 
is now changing, and we know that from our fossil record, from records that we have that go back a long time. And the temperatures are rising. The CO2 in the atmosphere is rising from our uh, burning of fossil fuels. And we just know from the basic laws of physics that it's going to have to get hotter. There's no question about it. And the more fossil fuels we pump into the atmosphere, uh, the hotter it's going to get. Uh, I mean, that's just basic laws of nature. Uh, there's nothing about it. There's no opinions. The big unknown, Kate, to tell you the truth, is how much we're going to pump into the atmosphere. And that's so when we look forward and you say, oh, it's going to be two degrees centigrade hotter or three degrees degrees or four degrees, a lot of that uncertainty is not because of the science. It's because of us. We don't know what we're actually going to do in the future. Uh, so things will change without a doubt. And so knowing that this change has been constant, it's somewhat really at an accelerated pace right now. We've had time then over the the centuries and eons to adapt. Are we able to do that kind of thing now? That's a really good question. Uh, I, I assume you're talking about evolutionary adaptation, where according to Darwin and according to many scientists, including myself, I'm an evolutionary biologist, uh, we can see how plants and animals adapt to changes in their environment over periods of time, over generations, to take into consideration how things are changing. But that's usually a relatively long-term process. So the changes that we're seeing on the planet now that are happening in decades uh, and centuries is not really an evolutionary time. And so we're not going to necessarily change our physiology to adapt to higher temperatures. Uh, we're going to have to adapt our lifestyles, our physical lifestyles in some way to deal with all these changes in uh, not only just climate, but the environment uh, in general. Because that's what is really key here in the Anthropocene, that it's human beings, we the people, are the ones creating this as opposed to evolution over time where just things happened on the planet and uh, interstellar kinds of things, eruptions, right? right? That that, that's exactly right. It's, it's really these changes that we're seeing are our own doing. Now, there isn't background natural variation. There's no question about that. But again, those are usually over longer periods of time. But what we're seeing when we see increased CO2 in the atmosphere, which causes increased temperatures, we see more and more of our natural environments being degraded and cut down. We see species going extinct. We see increased amounts of pollution and plastic in our environments. All of those things, they're not caused by any natural causes. They're caused by us. Now, we might think of humans as natural, but certainly what the planet is seeing is not sort of nature that it's experienced over the last 4.6 billion years. So uh, there's so much that's involved in it. If we look at our part in this and how we have in this short period of time that we have been advancing. And, and in the book, you mentioned how really perhaps it's accelerated since really in the last uh, almost 70 years, just through all the in, uh, post-war industrialization that went on through the 50s and onward. We, we loved all these advances, but it's also kind of 
the, the the thing, not kind of, it is the thing that is causing all this problem for us. Yeah, that, I mean, that brings up a good point. Scientists have been debating in a friendly way when the Anthropocene really began, and some say it began 50,000 years ago when our early ancestors began to uh, kill off the large mammals in North America, for example, the mastodons and things. Others say that the major changes began uh, when humans began to domesticate animals and plants and started cutting down habitats to grow uh, food. Uh, Others have different dates. The most agreed upon date, though, by most scientists is uh, about the mid-1950s when industrialization really kicked off. That's when we see these major increases in temperature, major increases in pollution, major increases in uh, CO2 in the atmosphere. And that's what's called, and you may hear the term, the Great Acceleration. All of these changes had been happening in the background, but in the 1950s, it seems that's when these things really kicked into gear. And so we've seen a lot of change as a result of that uh, over the last 60, 70 years. True. And we have certainly uh, enjoyed, appreciated so many of these advances, but are we needing to then really take a step back and look at what the cost of that is for us, for our planet? What kind of home are we going to be living, leaving for these future generations? Oh, I certainly think so. Uh, and and that's, that's the challenge before us right now. And that's partly why Jeffrey Stein, the co-editor of this book, and I uh, put the volume together. We feel like the best or the most important next step is awareness. And uh, that awareness is still not universal, even though we just had these three or four major category four and five hurricanes that devastated North America. Uh, the, the, the tie between those weather events and climate change is not being recognized by a lot of people. And so that's, that's the big challenge ahead of us right now. A building awareness and then awareness, after we have that awareness, we really need to act because unless we have some sort of a general consensus on this, we're not going to be able to talk our industrialists or our politicians into taking the necessary changes. And that brings us to the point where CO2 is such a critical part of it here because of the warming uh, that's going on, just air quality as well. And they're talking about, again, opening up the Arctic for more drilling. And then it says, well, how much oil, gas, uh, fuel can we expect from this? It equals one year. It, it's that kind of... Um, Education, isn't yeah. it, that we need to put across to people? Yes. I mean, we can. It's taken, I don't know exactly how many millions of years, but millions and millions of years of putting that carbon dioxide in the ground through vegetation and, and all this stuff. Now, within 70 years, we're releasing it all. Actually, over the last 300 years, maybe is more accurate. But suddenly all this carbon dioxide is, is being released into the atmosphere. And again, the laws of physics say it is not possible to put the CO2 in the atmosphere without the planet heating up. It's just not possible. So it's going to happen. Uh, so keeping that, keeping that carbon dioxide in the planet, underground, 
putting it back there if we can, and some suggest that that's what we do. I'm not sure if that's the solution, but com definitely switching away from the burning of fossil fuels and renewable energy is a major transition that we have to go through over the next 50 years if we're going to have any semblance of normality over the next 500 years. Again, it's, it's just the laws of physics. It's right there. Yes. Let me say something, Kate. You you said uh, the book you put together or wrote. I, please remember that this is an edited volume with 32 different scholars contributing their views on climate change and environmental change in the Anthropocene. We had not only scientists, and many scientists here at the Smithsonian contributed, but we had economists, we had historians, we asked artists, we asked physicians, we asked a cross-section of people living in our societies to contribute their thoughts from their perspectives and their disciplines on what it means to be living in the Anthropocene. And I think that's the strength of this volume. And there should be something in there for anybody that has any sort of background. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for really putting that across so clearly, John. I appreciate that. And in mentioning the Smithsonian, let's give the website where people can uh, get more and broader information, but they can also find this important book there uh, so that they can get sure. it and learn. You could go on to uh, smithsonian.com. Uh, there's many <laughs> diverse and complex websites at the Smithsonian, but Smithsonian.com, we actually have a section on there now called Living in the Anthropocene uh, that talks about climate change and environmental change. And you can find the book there. You can find the book on Amazon. Uh, th there's many ways to access it, but we've got a lot of information. So going to Smithsonian.com or SI.edu uh, will help you uh, find this information. Perfect. And you were mentioning, which is such uh, an invaluable resource, having the input from such a diverse group of people that someone, everyone really, can identify in some way. And you mentioned artists, which is really interesting. They pay, play a key role here because there's this visual part of dealing with what is going on that maybe is going to speak to a lot of people. It, it definitely is, and we've particularly reached out to artists at the Smithsonian, artists and art historians and art scholars. It shouldn't say they are all, you know, primary artists, but we felt that climate change and environmental change can be very subtle in ways, <laughs> not necessarily our Hurricane Maria by any means, but climate change can be subtle, and because it takes place over time, you may not recognize and understand the immensity of this change, but artists can help us visualize that change. And so Jeffrey and I thought it was really important uh, that we brought artists' perspective. And, and those are graphic artists. Those are filmmakers. Uh, we really wanted to get their viewpoint on the best way to convey the Anthropocene uh, to a broad segment of the public. We invited not only people from our American Art Museum, from the African Art Museum. We invited the director of the National Museum of Af African American uh, History and Culture, the newest museum on the mall, to give a perspective on racial uh, overview of climate change. And we, we really, we started this effort. Let me just go a little history here, if you don't mind. Uh, Jeffrey and I and a few others begin to realized this immense change that was happening about three or four years ago and that the Smithsonian could actually play a role 
in this building this awareness that I talked about a little bit earlier. And so we kind of looked across the museums and research institutes at the Smithsonian, including the art museums, the history museums, the science museums, the National Zoo, and pulled together this cadre of scholars to begin to address this question of what does living in the Anthropocene mean? And out of that weekly discussion with this group, we hosted several symposia. Uh, Jeffrey and I decided we really needed to record this in a volume. And, and so a lot of that is what you now read in the book, Living in the Anthropocene. And it is such a phenomenal book. I think I um, really feel that this is something that each of us needs to embrace. We may find ourselves attracted to a certain uh, area of the book because of how it relates to us, but it's going to put across the utter essential education that we have to embrace so that we can move forward and do something before really it's utterly too late. Yeah, well, I'm glad you said I, I, <laughs> I couldn't agree more, and that's why we put the book together. But uh, the book kind of goes through a, a series of, first, what is the Anthropocene, what's happening, uh, Second, how has this happened? Third, how are we going to respond to these changes that are going on on the planet? Then we have this section that you mentioned on visual culture and how we can envision it and how our artists see it. And then the final section, uh, which we call the way forward, is is five opinions, and or not opinions, but five perspectives on what we need to do to actually uh, address all this. So it, it does take the reader in a very short way. It's not a long book, uh, but I kind of takes one through the various issues from different perspectives. And we, we specifically asked these contributors to write short essays. We didn't want long things that would go on and on. So each one is about 1,200 words and is a very succinct three or four page perspective. Um, so I hope people find that that does help to increase awareness about what's happening. Yes, that's what really makes it so readable. And and then uh, really seeing the visual, I uh, am going to go back to that section because it also conveys so much, uh, in particular what we see uh, here on our coastal area along the Pacific Coast, all of the part of the industrial times, all the plastics that have ended up in our ocean and the effect that they're having, um, it it's not that we will probably do away with plastics, but we will be hopefully uh, more conscious of what's going on and, and how we treat it as we have it in our hands. Well, th th yeah, that's a perfect example of a non-climate change-oriented environmental change. I mean, plastic and our impact on the environment by altering it uh, is just immense. And I think your your point about the oceans and how much plastic is in the ocean is a good one. A lot of us see that, but you can't walk on any beach anywhere in the world without running into plastic, and it's going to be there for a long time. It really is. Because it doesn't degrade uh, in the way that uh, if you 
if we drop a piece of food or if the leaf falls on the ground. That doesn't happen. Plastic it just has a, a forever kind of life about it. Well, it does. We remember, though, there are, there are many types of plastic. We Plastic is simply a term for a certain type of polymer. And there are some... In fact, we're studying right now at the Smithsonian why some of our plastic objects and specimens are degrading. So some plastic does fall apart. But most of the plastic that we're putting in the environment will take a long time. It gets broken up into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces, but it still stays around. And and that's the big problem. And one of the things that I read uh, recently, but and it connects so well here, is how we see things... Uh, it, it's part of an evolutionary process with the mass of plastics that are floating in the oceans. And then you have the tsunami that happened in Japan, uh, what, six, seven, eight years ago, something like that, that now as it's hit our shores, all the different kinds of, of uh, marine life that attached to that and came here. It's true. It's true. And then a lot of that marine life is trying to adapt to this new environment they have. Um but when you go to islands in the Pacific and see nests of albatross with the carcasses of baby albatrosses with their guts full of plastic bottle caps, you will understand that this is a planetary phenomenon and not just something on the west coast of the U.S. It is everywhere. And that's where I, that visual, you know, imagining that, which is heart-wrenching, but mm -hmm. life-altering, uh, we see where the small things we do, where we just maybe are unconscious of what we do with a bottle that we carry or some piece of trash, is it's it can be those simple steps we take to really take care in a caring way of of our home, our our streets here where we live, and and then uh, it it manifests to the broader world, doesn't it? Yeah, oh, it's it certainly does, and I think those small steps that we can each take as a citizen of the planet are very important, but that's not going to solve the problems. No, that's going to reduce the causes of some of the problems, and we should definitely do all that. But uh, pumping carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is happening across the planet and from a lot of different sources. So so there are small things we can do, and we have to do those, but there are also big things we can do, and we're going to have to do those as well. You know, if we worked as hard as we could right now to get everything back on track in terms of how much we're altering the planet, things are still going to change. I mean, the, the CO2 in the atmosphere today is going to be there for thousands of years. It's not going anywhere. Uh, so, well, eventually it'll go back into the Earth and escape in, in, into the uh, space. But we're going to see the changes that we've made today around for a long time. So the question is, how much more are we going to put in there and how much more are things going to change in the future? And that's what we have to address right now. Exactly. So it, it is some of that. It's social. It is. It comes to being political, too, which sometimes feels so unwieldy. But don't we want to stress how each of us then has to really focus on making our voice heard and making sure our representatives are are heeding what we say? I, I, I couldn't agree more. We definitely have to do that. We have to speak out. 
we have to say things need to change. But, you know, on, on the positive note, they are changing. Every major federal agency at, this, at the, in the U.S. government has written a report on climate change. Department of Defense has looked at security changes with climate change. Department of Energy has looked at how we're going to have new energy sources with climate change. Everybody's done this. The Smithsonian has a statement on climate change and what it means to educating the public. So we just have to make sure that keeps moving forward and that our representative government is aware that this is a big issue for the citizens of the United States. And we come back to the point of being more informed, better informed, and educated ourselves so that we can really speak wisely and emphatically to each of these issues. Find the one that really resonates with us. Everyone's going to be involved. We should be able to cover all the bases. I think we should, uh, without a doubt. And uh, that's what we need to do. So as I said, let's all increase our awareness of the problems. And everybody could choose how they want to deal with this. Um, but first of all, everyone needs to know what the problems are and what, what the options are for us to make things uh, different. Yes. And so a great way to become informed, because this really gives us a, a, a broad perspective from so many different voices in this new book, Living in the Anthropocene, Earth in the Age of Humans. Ah. Here we have the opportunity to get this perspective. And we may find that we kind of get reading and we stop at an area and say, well, this is what resonates with me. This is where I'm going. And that's just great, isn't it, John? It definitely is. And that's why we went forward. Jeffrey and I felt it was really important to get all these different perspectives to make sure that there would be something in there that would resonate with every reader. And hopefully there are multiple things in the book that will resonate uh, with each of the readers. Yes, absolutely. And and then take action. It, you know, talk to people, form these talking circles so that we can become uh, feet on the ground and, and voices heard to uh, really see this change, be the uh, force of change in the world. Definitely. Well, we want it to force of change in a positive way. We know the yes. world is changing, <laughs> yeah. but we want to make sure we're changing it in the positive way. Uh, you know, let me also say that I started by saying the Earth is 4.6 billion years old. Life has been around for 3.2 billion years. You know, and life is going to go on. I am not at all worried that humans are going to end life on the planet. We're going to radically alter it, or we could radically alter it, but life will go on. Uh, we also know that all species go extinct. We are simply one of billions of species that have been on the planet, and we will go extinct as well. But we can decide, are we going to cause ourselves to go extinct? Are we going to be able to change things so that our ancestors, our uh, descendants, will actually be able to, to benefit from what we do today. Yes, excellent point. It really is up to us. Uh, we have essentially that future in our hands, but we need to be informed and proceed wisely, don't we? We do. Yes. We do, and they're a wise thing to do, So, but everybody has to think about what they can do as an individual. Exactly. So again, let's mention uh, the website, the availability of the book, John. Uh, yeah, go to uh, smithsonian.com or you can, and on smithsonian.com is Smithsonian Books, the publisher of the book, and you can find the book there. 
There's also a nice section on living in the Anthropocene on the Smithsonian website that takes you through various case histories of things. And we put together some animated videos that talk about uh, changes in the environment, changes in the atmosphere, plastic in the environment, such things. So you can be uh, get quite an education about the Anthropocene on the website. That is so perfect. I am so grateful that you have this uh have had this knowledge and you want to impart it, that you continue uh, to do your research and, and collaborate and that you bring to us this kind of important information so uh, we can also become much more informed and educated. Thank you, John. Kate, that's the mission of the Smithsonian, and we're doing it as hard as we can. Well, we are definitely in your debt for that. Okay, great. Th- thanks for taking the time to talk to me. And so here it is. It's in our hands. We have so much opportunity to make the choices for good changes to go on. And one way is perhaps to uh, create these kinds of talking circles uh, in our own homes, in our neighborhoods, uh, with groups of friends, so that we address an issue or several issues that really seem key to our area that will make a positive impact so that we have better, healthier changes for our collective future.